Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Biden administration's executive order on artificial intelligence from last fall handed an assignment to the National Institute of Standards and Technology. NIST is supposed to develop guidelines for testing and so-called red teaming of AI models. NIST has a request for comments about what it's supposed to do. One group responding is the Information Technology Industry Council. The council's vice president, Courtney Lang, joins me with more. Courtney, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. Great to be here today. And what exactly is NIST supposed to do? Because developing standards for artificial intelligence would take it 30 years Yeah, so there's actually quite a few things that NIST is tasked to do in the executive order and kind of a couple of buckets that I would break it into is the first bucket is indeed looking at ways in which they can develop standards, best practices and guidelines to help support the safe and secure development of deployment of AI systems. And so what this looks like in the executive order is they are tasked with developing a companion document to their AI risk management framework focused specifically on generative AI systems. They are also tasked with developing, as you mentioned, standards for AI red teaming or standards that can help organizations test and evaluate the capabilities associated with their AI systems. They are also tasked with taking a look at the existing landscape for content authentication. One of the directives in the executive order is focused on reducing the risks of synthetic content. And so NIST is supposed to be looking at kind of what the existing landscape is like for standards in that area. And then in the event that there are gaps that need to be filled, tasked with them developing additional guidelines and best practices there. And then finally, in the executive order, they're also tasked with developing a global engagement plan for international AI standards. So that's kind of the final area that they're tasked with looking at. So it's not a small number of activities that NIST is tasked with supporting under this executive order. Right. And so they've put out a call for comments, which they do. That's their standard operating procedure pretty much broadly, not just industry, but anyone that wants to comment then can weigh in here. Yep, that's right. The goal is to get as many perspectives and diverse viewpoints as possible so that they have a wide variety of input as they're moving forward with these various directives under the executive order. And what did ITI choose to comment on? What are your big concerns here? First and foremost, there's a lot to unpack, as we just mentioned, in just the directives provided to NIST alone. And so the RFI itself is pretty wide ranging. It's asking for input on quite a lot of different areas, which I just elaborated on. And we tried to respond to every area that we thought was relevant, which is quite a lot in the executive order. So for example, we discussed, you know, how NIST might approach creating this companion document for generative AI risk management. And one of the things we really emphasized in that regard is the importance of working with international counterparts while they are doing this work so that As this moves forward, they are remaining aligned and that approaches can be made interoperable to the extent possible with international counterparts who are also looking at, you know, developing similar types of frameworks or ways in which to manage risk associated with 
generative AI or advanced AI systems. So this is one area that we specifically encourage them to look at. And as a part of that, really highlighted the important role that both developers and deployers play within the AI value chain, because they were specifically interested in learning more about, you know, how transparency functions both within the value chain and then kind of externally when the sure. uh, system is deployed. And so just a quick a question, though, about working yeah. with international partners. How do you make sure that we're not aligned with China, which could care less about transparency or ethical deployment at all, really? Yeah. So when we're talking about international counterparts, we're really encouraging this to bring what they're doing to international standards bodies. We think that these are the premier place to be kind of working on the development of these very technical standards so that they can be adopted widely and they are globally recognized and they're really industry driven. And so multiple jurisdictions are involved in standards development bodies. There is a set of rules that those bodies follow. And so What's really interesting about the standards development process is that pretty much no standard goes into that process and remains untouched coming out. So although, you know, you have multiple different countries engaged there, it's really a meeting of the minds and really what comes out is kind of the best of the best ideas that are put in. So in that way, you know, we really encourage participation there, remaining aligned with folks that do have those kind of like-minded ideas and and are kind of allied in that fashion. We're speaking with Courtney Lang. She's Vice President of Policy, Trust, Data, and Technology for the Information Technology Industry Council. And what about standards for AI? I mean, it's such a wide open field with so many different applications. What areas of it can standards have any meaning at this point? There's actually a lot of areas right now where standards can be really helpful, especially because, as you know, we are in a rapidly evolving field. And it feels like, you know, every week there's something new that's happening, you know, things are are changing rapidly. And so, you know, one of the areas that we've really seen an increased focus on lately is related to red teaming for AI systems. And this is definitely an area where standards can be really helpful. There are- What is red teaming anyway? Red teaming is really something that I'm familiar with primarily from a cybersecurity context, right? So you have- either an internal team of employees or, you know, kind of an external organization that a company will hire in order to break or hack into a system in a way that would reflect, you know, an attack by a malicious actor. And the goal of that is to find, you know, vulnerabilities or security flaws so that they can be patched before that system is, you know, placed on the market. Oftentimes this is a continuous process, but sometimes it's not. When we're talking about AI, this is an area that is, I think, still being kind of figured out because we're really taking what is something that has been very traditionally cybersecurity oriented and now talking about it in a context that is much broader than cybersecurity. Of course, organizations are going to want to test their system for security flaws, but some of the things that we're talking about in the AI context are broader than just security, right? You're talking about the ways in which they might impact people's human rights. You're talking about, you know, ensuring that biased outcomes are mitigated. You're making sure that the model is, you know, secure against malicious attacks or uh, kind of data input attacks, things of that nature. So it's somewhat broader than just what you think of in the cybersecurity context. But what that means when it comes to standards is that right now there are organizations that might be undertaking different types of testing, different types of evaluation. Sometimes it's consistent, sometimes it may not be. And I think right now we're still working towards finding a common agreement as to what exactly red teaming looks like in the AI context. And so that's one area where standards are going to be really helpful moving forward. 
I imagine one area for standards could also be, say, how you make sure that your algorithm is consistent in its output over time, because that's one of the big issues is drift. And maybe there are ways that you can ensure in an industrial setting that that drift is kept within some sort of parameter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think another area that standards will be particularly helpful is related to measurement. I think one of the challenging things in AI is really figuring out how you measure not only kind of various outputs and impacts of those outputs, but, you know, the risks associated with it. So having those metrics and really being able to delineate, as you said, you know, what a reasonable range might look like for that kind of thing, or alternatively, you know, how you really constitute what risk looks like is going to be something that's really helpful to actually operationalizing a lot of the things, for example, that are in the current AI risk management framework. I mean, in regular software, the logic never changes. The statements of logic that are executed in hardware and give you your outputs never change. Sometimes for software that runs for 50 years, you might put it on a new machine, but it's the same logic. Artificial intelligence, by definition, changes the logic in the software. And is there a way of measuring what has changed as a way to understand how bias might be coming in? Or is there a way to, say, limit it to only so many lines can be changed or only this part of the algorithm can be changed as it learns through new data? So that, I think, is an area that is still, you know, being explored in some of the international standards development bodies about, you know, how you measure kind of the amount of change, things of that nature. I will say one of the standards that actually recently came out was the ISO 42001 series. And this is an overarching kind of AI systems management standard. And it really offers organizations a framework to look at a lot of these overarching questions. So as they are thinking about, you know, what kind of framework they need to put in place for governance, they have something that they can work with. And then from there, figure out what sorts of components they need to actually leverage in order to address things like, you know, potential bias, potential, you know, concerns related to, you know, how the model is evolving, if it's not supposed to evolve in certain ways, things like that. And a final question, just from your comments that I read, there's something called multiple content authentication techniques. And I was just curious, what is that? Yeah. So one of the things that we've been looking at a lot in conjunction with our member companies is kind of this concern related to the proliferation of of mis and disinformation, particularly as AI-generated you know, content becomes much more widely accessible and really understanding you know, when and how that content is you know, generated and, and making sure that as an end user, for example, you're aware you know, if and when that content is AI-generated. And so we put out a paper recently on um, AI-generated content authentication techniques. And the overarching thing that came out of that was really that you know, watermarking has been talked about quite a lot in this conversation as kind of the solution for content authentication. And I think what we found as we were digging into this topic a little bit further is that there are a lot of other content authentication techniques that work hand in hand with watermarking. And so as NIST is exploring this landscape in the context of their, you know, tasking under the executive order, we've really encouraged them to take into account this fact, right, that there is watermarking, but then there is also, you know, things like metadata auditing that really need to go hand in hand with watermarking in order to make it as effective as possible. 
What's also interesting is that watermarking can take place at different points in the value chain. And so at different points, you know, watermarking might be appropriate, but then at a different point in the value chain, you may want to use a different authentication technique. And so, you know, what we've really encouraged NIST to do is kind of catalog, right, all of these various content authentication techniques, and then from there, figure out, okay, where are there gaps? Where do we need to make more progress on? And then um, move forward. But really, the, the point of mentioning the multiple content authentication techniques was to highlight that watermarking is not the only solution. You do have things like provenance tracking, like metadata auditing, like even human authentication in certain instances where it makes sense that should be paired with watermarking writ large. Well, there's lots we could discuss, but we'll leave it there. Courtney Lang is Vice President of Policy, Trust, Data, and Technology at the Information Technology Industry Council. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the ITI comments at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? 
Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.